And for the rest of us, let's take a copy of God's Word. Let's stand to the reading of God's Word in reverence to Him. Now, I want to read two portions of Scripture. We're studying through 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So we're going to read that text today. But also, just because you love it so much. Because you love God's Word. Amen? Amen. You'd, read, you'd stand all day and just read Leviticus if I let you. Amen? I thought I heard an oh me. All right, do this. We're going to come to 1 Corinthians, but I want you to also, I want to read 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 through 11. And then we'll come over here to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The text will be expositing. However, we will reference... We will reference this text here, uh, this guy named Solomon. Ever heard of Solomon? We'll be referencing some of what happened here with Solomon. If you're looking for a title, um, I actually um, changed the title a little bit uh, late last night, early this morning. I didn't like the way my title was, and I kind of wanted to reframe it. So uh, we, you may have the notes from David putting it in there because I gave him a title yesterday. I've changed it a little bit. The title of the message is The Greatest Danger to the Church is from the Inside. The Greatest Danger to the Church is from the Inside, right? Now, chapter 1 Kings 11, 1. Let me, let's, let me read this for you. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, the Moabite, the Ammonite, the Edomite, Sidonians, and the Hittite women. From the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not go along along with them, nor shall they go along with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from their gods, after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. And it happened at that time that Solomon was old. His wives turned his heart away from, away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and did not follow Yahweh fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain, which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not walk after other gods, But he did not keep what Yahweh had commanded. Now do this. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'll share with you, and you can probably see the handwriting on the wall, why we would read about Solomon. I would review that. Now as we read our text, The Greatest Danger to the Church is from the Inside. That's our sermon title, verse 14. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the sanctuary of God with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from, from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Can I pray over our text? Would you help us to accomplish this morning? Let us expose this text. Let us open it up. What did the original recipients understand from this? What did the Corinthians, what through your inspired author, you inspired Paul as he was writing this, the intended meaning. Let us capture what this means in light of the whole book of Second Corinthians in light of all of Scripture. Help us. Help us to learn from Solomon, who is a classic example of corrupting, corruption from the inside. A corrupted heart. So God, let us heed the warnings. Let us love the text. Let us gather what can help our church, can help us in our families, our relationships, our disciple-making for your glory. And God's people said, amen. You can be seated. So the title of the message is The Greatest Danger to the Church is from the Inside, and it really is. The greatest threat to Israel in the Old Testament, it was from within. The greatest threat to Solomon was really his own heart. It was from within. The greatest threat to the Corinthians, actually, was from within. And the greatest threat to either any of us in this room is really from within. The greatest threat. Now, i got a picture to show you. Um, it's the one with the tree stump, right? Okay, this is a tree stump from my backyard, right? Does everybody see this? Can you? Now, I don't know if you can tell, but there's wood on the outside. But do y'all notice something missing in the middle? Wood, right? And that's more than likely because what happened to this tree? It rotted. It rotted from the inside. So this tree, this is probably about six months ago. We had to cut down this tree. I didn't know it, but at the time, I really never um, inspected this tree. But as we were, I had to build a fence because we decided to get a dog because I have no sense in life, right? And so we had to build a fence and this tree was in the way. So we were taking a look at it, and what came to realize is this tree had been rotted from the inside, corrupted from the inside. You almost couldn't tell from the outside, because, but we had a professional come and say, yeah, this tree is going to come down. In fact, the professional said, this tree with the right storm, this tree is vulnerable, it will come down. But really, the, the, the danger to the tree was now the upcoming storm, but the danger to the tree actually came a long time ago. There was at some point this tree corrupted from the inside. And when the inside corrupts, everything to the outside will corrupt. Actually, you can see how far the corruption had went that from the inside. And then it already had started to make its way to the outside. And we cut down that tree. By the way, that was weeks before that really big storm that we got in the spring. And so um, God is so sovereign over things. So I'm so thankful. But the greatest threat to the tree was not the storm 
It was way back in the past from the inside. From the inside. The greatest threat is the inside. For the church, the greatest threat is really what could happen from the corruption that could happen on the inside. Now, this text that we're reading today, there is an immediate application that we'll see that the greatest threat to the Corinthian church was actually corruption from the inside. However, there's lots of applications in this text that we can use today. Now, when you read 1 Corinthians, remember, they had a lot of corruption from the inside with immorality. When you read 2 Corinthians, there's a lot of corruption from the inside that had to actually do with a lot of their teachers and preachers, right? So in 1 Corinthians, you have a lot of corruption from the pew, although they didn't have pews, but you get what I'm saying, right? They had a, a corruption from the pew, but in 2 Corinthians, you really get a corruption from the pulpit, right? So 1 Corinthians, it's really the immorality of their past is really influencing them in a, in a, uh, for corruption. And now you see it's really their leadership, right? So that's what you're seeing in the overall text of 2 Corinthians that helps form out what is he actually talking about in the text itself? Now, before we dive into the text, let me just have you turn a couple places into 2 Corinthians. Are y'all still okay with turning some pages in your Bible? Are you okay with it, right? Man, we are going to wear your wrist out today. You've been turning pages for hymnals. Now you're going to turn pages for Bible, right? Um, you had to turn the pages. Some of you may not have to turn a page for the Bible. You might have it digitally. I don't know if there are digital hymnals yet. Are there digital hymnals? Do y'all know? Is there such thing? Well, <laughs> it could never be. Do this. Look at 2 Corinthians 2. We're going to come back. I just want to form out some things. This is how we actually know the greatest dangers were from inside the church. And in context, it was really the, the pagan leadership who were posing as believers. These Pagan, these leaders had a profession of Christ, but not an actual possession of Christ. These leaders in their church that have infiltrated, they were talking about Jesus, but not Jesus as the only way to the Father. They were teaching things, which was called Judaizing, which was this idea of you're saved by faith in Jesus plus works, right? You're saved by doing, by keeping the law in a way of earning your own righteousness and works. You're mixing two where you're saved by faith through grace alone. That's it. You're not saved by your good works. Now, once saved, you will work, but not by your good works. So they had all these false teachers that had infiltrated the church and saying that they belong to Christ, but teaching something other than what Paul had taught them. Paul had taught them that you're saved by the death of Jesus, by the resurrection of Jesus. Paul had taught them that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus rose from the dead. But that's not what these false teachers were teaching. They were teaching other things. They were teaching some things that we have today, such as the prosperity gospel. They actually had said, Paul must not be a legit apostle because he wouldn't take money from you, Corinthians. So they were all sorts of perverse teaching they were doing. The people in the church were unsuspectingly swallowing it up. Now you come to verse 17. Paul gives some warnings. He says, by the way, he's defending his ministry here. All the way from chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to chapter 7, verse 4, where we've been the last couple weeks, he's basically had to defend his ministry. Now, next week we'll get back into him no longer defending his ministry, and he's going to, talk, he's going to be talking about some other things. But he's had to defend himself for, for you know, several chapters, from 2.13 to 7.4. But here's some things that tell you, contextually, the greatest danger in this text, this 
unequally yoked idea that we're going to talk about in a minute. It was from these false teachers. He says in verse 17 of chapter 2, For we are not like many peddling the word of God, right? But as from sincerity, but as from God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So there were those in the church who were making money off of presenting a false gospel for their um, exploiting the people. And you can make a lot of money. Um, you know, Christianity can't sell. Now, go over also, turn to this next scripture, turn over to chapter 5, verse 12. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, We are not again commending ourselves to you, because that's what the false teachers had done, but are giving you an opportunity to boast of us so that you will have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in the heart. Remember the false teachers were saying, this gospel that Paul taught you, if it was really from God, Paul, Paul would never be suffering. Because he suffers, God must not be in this message of the good news that Paul had told you. And Paul says, no, actually, I'm trying to help correct some things and let you know that actually you can, you know, the sufferings I'm going through does, does not mean that the message of the gospel I gave you was wrong. Don't, don't go with what these false teachers, these false teachers teach that appearance is how you judge what's spiritual. By the way, that's another thing that runs around what we call the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel, if you're going to a church and the church tells you that God owes you something or that every bit of faithfulness you give to God means that God's going to give back to you, this kind of idea, you'll see an, in false gospel, prosperity gospel churches, they'll say, say things like you need to, you need to sow a seed or, you know, we, you'll hear these kind of statements. That's not God's not a cosmic gumball machine that you drop a quarter in and he's obligated to give you what you want. God's obligated to, for his own glory to bring his glory to the nations. That's what God's wanting to do. Go to 2 Corinthians, go to chapter 11 and verse 1 through 4. Paul says, I wish, this is chapter 11, verse 4. I'm just, I'm helping build out why I'm telling you that the greatest danger in the text is really from inside the church and contextually it really has to do with the false teachers that are there. But know this. If you've got corruption in the pulpit, you're going to have corruption in the pew. Let me say that again. If you have corruption in the pulpit, you'll have corruption in the pew. Y'all get that right? So as, as, a, as a ministry leader leads a church, so it influences and can infect in a bad way the people. And this is what was happening. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 4, Paul says, I wish... That you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul says, I've presented you to Christ. I've taught you the true gospel message. Verse 3, But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Remember, the false teachers were adding things to their salvation. We're saying, yes, you're saved by what Christ has done plus what you do. Paul says, you're being deceived. As Satan deceived Eve, Satan is deceiving you. Corruption from the inside. Verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not accept, you bear this beautifully. He just basically is saying... Someone who says something other than the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, you entertain these guys too much. You give them too much credibility. Just because they phonically say the name of Jesus doesn't mean they're worshiping the same Jesus. Kind of like this. Um, some people have said to me, 
the Jehovah Witness, right? Of the, of the Jehovah Witness, Jesus that they worship is the same Jesus we worship. No, he's not, right? The Jehovah Witness, Jesus, is a Jesus that is, was an angel that was created and is not God. The Jesus we serve is the infinite God who is always existent, self-existent and is still God today. Never was he created. He always existed. Different Jesus. But these kind of guys what in the Corinthian church, they were... It was kind of this idea that every new cult that started, if that cult just said the name of Jesus, they believed that that was the same Jesus. And by the way, here's just a side note. Any cult that exists on the planet, right? If you basically look at what they believe about Jesus, and that's how you're going to be able to tell whether it's a cult or not, right? A cult always messes with who Jesus is. They mess with, is he God? And they mess with, was he truly man, right? They always mess with that idea. So we see, keep looking at chapter 11 and look in chapter 11, verse 13 through 15. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. Wolves in sheep clothing is what they were. Verse 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan. You know what Satan doesn't? Here's what some people think Satan wants to do. His, his mode of attack is that Satan's going to attack the church by scaring it. Here's how Satan attacks the church. By getting on it on the inside. That's what Satan wants to do. How's he going to corrupt a life from the inside, right? How, do, how have all the great nations in the world ever fallen? They typically fall from the inside, right? The greatest danger is on the inside. He says that you have entertained Satan. He is disguised as an angel of light. Verse 15, therefore it is not surprising... If his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Now go back over to chapter 6. So now that you have the, the, the context, the greatest danger to the church is from the inside. And really, in our overall text, he's pointing to these false teachers and their corrupting teaching that was corrupting everything around them. Now we'll give you a greater application. This can extend to many different areas as well by application. It really can, right? And last week we talked about this idea of Paul saying, open your hearts to me, open your hearts to me. Why was he saying that? Because they had opened their hearts to these false teachers who were basically, it was basically a corrupting influence from the inside. And Paul says, until we get rid of those guys, until you are no longer unequally yoked with those unbelieving pagan teachers, then you're not going to open your heart to me. You're not going to open up to what I've already told you in the past and the ministry that I've done to you. So now that we've done that, we're, I think we're ready for our text. Um, and just a word of, of caution. Once again, the greatest danger is what happens on the inside, right? It really is. That's why we have to be cautious. Oh, we have to be cautious. The things that we believe, the ideas that we gather every day from a news article to a podcast to a social media, um, to what those closest in our world, we have to be cautious with the counsel we receive at times. Always asking the question, how does what I'm being told line up with thus saith the word of God? That's why we always study the word of God. You'll, the way to know if something is a fraud is by knowing what? What's real and legit. How do you tell a counterfeit? You tell a counterfeit by knowing what a real dollar looks like. That's how you actually tell a counterfeit. Corruption happens from the inside. It happens so much. 
Now, all y'all know that I really love the area of biblical counseling, and this is where I'm so passionate about this ministry of biblical counseling, is because most people go and receive counsel where they're basically being corrupted from the inside. They're being told things that aren't what God has said. They're being told things that are the philosophies of man. Oh, it's so damaging. I'll give you an example of this. Um, Almost every single counselor you'll see now who is not one who believes the Bible is sufficient, here's what they're going to tell you if you have a marriage problem. Separate. That's what they're going to tell you. Get in separate locations. This is what they're going to tell you. If you can be happy and healthy and whole separately, someday you can come back together. That sounds so good, so romantic, so fluffy and great, but it is not what God's Word says, right? You know what I've noticed? Almost every couple that does that, in the end, it actually corrupts the ability for them to ever reconcile in Christ, right? But what it is, is, is it's the corrupting influence of the world system, of their teaching, of their philosophy. I can even tell you this today. There are several of us here that the most corrupting influence in our world is the friends that we have. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future many times. It's amazing the power of a friend. The power of a, a friend and their voice in your life. So corruption happens from the inside very often. Parents, I, just a warning to us. We ought to be concerned about who are friends with our kids. We really are. And just a side note to us as parents. If you ever perceive that a friend is a corrupting influence to your kid, you have the authority from God to end that friendship, right? And listen, if you're listening to this and you're a teenager and you're thinking, my parents shouldn't have that authority, I lovingly, let me tell you, you're wrong. They do have that authority. And there come times as a parent that you have to shut that off. And your kid's probably not going to like you for doing that. But we must fear God and not man. Because corruption comes from the inside. That's why even parents, can we please pray for our kids? Uh, already, I'm praying for the future for my kids. I'm praying if God, if God allows them to be married. I'm already praying for the future husband that God would bring to them. He will have a vast impact on their world. And I'm... I mean, there is no harder thing on a parent. You parents have seen it. If there's, a, if there's a marriage, if you have a child that you've raised to love the Lord and that child marries a pagan who doesn't love the Lord, what pain that is on a parent. And you know that in that moment, you're just thinking this, just, this corrupting influence is, is going to take my kid down. Pray for your kids. By the way, in your, if you're single and you're looking for the future of what God wants in a marriage partner, I would, I would please let me encourage you with this. The question you always have to ask yourself, like if you're, if you're a woman and you're thinking like, okay, how do I judge and evaluate if a man is, is right for the Lord, right with the Lord? The question you must ask yourself as you look at his life, ask yourself questions such as this. If he's leading me, who's leading him? It's the biggest question you can ask. Why is this? Because corruption comes and happens from where? From where? From the inside. From the inside. By the way, just so we're not all high and mighty and, and perfect and righteous here. I think even this message, studying this, the question has to be asked this question. Maybe there aren't corrupt influences on the outside. Could I be the corrupting influence? You ever? I mean, sometimes we look at text and we forget, could I be the corrupting influence? Could I be the one? 
Now, what's interesting, in the context of this whole passage, this is not talking about people outside of the church, actually. This is talking about people who are inside of the church. People who are heavily invested and involved. People inside the church are the corrupting influence. What a great question to ask. Am I a corrupting influence in my church, in my friendships, in those I disciple, Am I corrupting influence to my children? Am I corrupting influence to my neighbors? It's a good question to ask. It's a solid question to ask. Okay, how are we doing? Everybody good? Are y'all good? Are we good? Are we happy? Are we good? Now let's look a little bit at the text here as I've kind of set it up here. Look at verse 14. Now we have another picture. Y'all love pictures, don't y'all? I have another picture. A yoke, right? How many of y'all love yolks, right? Not egg yolks, right? I love egg yolks, right? Egg yolks are good. They got vitamin D. This is not that kind of yolk. So what you have is a yolk is you would put two animals in this yolk together, right? And when you have two animals together, like you can actually pull, right? You've got two ox. You can pull here. You can get a lot done. One thing that you would never do is put two different kind of animals in a yolk. Why would you not do that? Daniel, there's, you didn't find one, did you? Man, hey, we were trying to find one that maybe had like a, you know, two different animals, but... You know, only an idiot would do that, right? So no, no true farmer would do that. But you would put an animal in a yoke, and when these animals were balanced and equal, they could accomplish so much. In the Old Testament law, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and 10, one of the Old Testament laws was that you would not put to an ox, um, and uh, you would, two different animals, right? You wouldn't put an ox and a donkey together in a yoke. You wouldn't do that. In Deuteronomy 22.10, because it would create inequality. It would, they'd stumble over each other. They'd hurt each other. There, there wouldn't be the accomplishment. Now you look at verse 14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't be equal, unequally yoked. It means that a pagan, someone who's an unbeliever and a believer, are trying to do life together in such a way that's only meant for those who are in Christ. So if you're, you have your outline and you're wanting to kind of keep track with an outline... Point number one is where I'm at now, which is the scriptural principle. He gives a scriptural principle that undergirds this whole idea of the greatest danger to the church is from the inside. And the scriptural principle is chapter 14. I'm sorry, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's the, the principle he lays out for this section through chapter 7. Don't, don't do it. Don't, don't be unequally yoked. It's going to mess you up. And what was happening in this church was... There were genuine followers of Jesus in one side and these false apostles, these false teachers in the other side and people being infected with that false teaching on the other side. The yokes were unequal. They were getting further from Christ. They were adding things to the gospel that weren't true. They were losing the gospel message. They were, they were getting back into the paganism of their past. And he says, here's the principle, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked. With unbelievers. Pagans in the pulpit resulted in pagans in the pews, and this paganism was creating an equality in the church that got them far from Christ, and it's a dangerous place to be. Here's some great questions I think we should ask ourselves Are we currently yoked up with people in our own personal life that actually? are unbelievers that are, actual, that are actually infecting us from the inside. Now, people look at this and they'll say, wait a minute, are you trying to say that we should not have any kind of friendship with pagans and unbelievers? Not saying that, right? 
Jesus ate meals with sinners, right? But, but guess who were the people that Jesus had a lot of strong, admonishing words to? The religious people who said that they were in, they said they were in the Lord, but their heart was far from him. So this kind of idea in the text is really this unequal yokeness is this idea of hanging out with people who actually are saying they're believers, but they're really, by their actions, are denying their faith in Christ. And they're actually being a corrupting influence. Is that there or are we that person today where we may be naming Christ, and, and, but yet, yet producing a bad influence? I'll give you an example. I think one of the hardest things when I first became a Christian um, was... The youth ministries, most youth ministries I saw, even, I mean, it was surprising how many of these kids would actually go to church, right? But, but yet, on the side, the way they talked and lived looked like they just belonged to hell. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Just the, sometimes you would see this in youth ministries. It's so hard to kind of get that in my, my mind. What is that? That's this unequal yokeness, and it was infecting the church. It was infecting the worldview. What about us? Is CBC, um, are there any beliefs that CBC has, our church has, that are secular ideas when it comes to ministry, that we are yoking with the unbelieving pagan philosophies? What about when it comes to our marriages? Those of us that are married, are we, have we bought into pagan philosophies about marriage? Have we bought into lies that marriage is about getting whatever we want when marriage is really about holiness and the glory of God. People approach a marriage all the time. A couple will decide that they're going to end their marriage because they have this idea that we're not happy. Well, the Bible actually describes marriage as something that not only drives holiness, but is an opportunity to show forth the relationship between, between Christ and his bride, the church. But how we bought into this idea of being unequally yoked with unbelievers in our midst, have we bought into unbelieving ideas? So that's a principle that he's asking. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now remember, contextually, we're talking about false teachers in the church. But I think there's a great application. For instance, if you've got a friend right now that says they love the Lord, has that friend that loves the Lord been any encouragement for you to love the Lord? That's the really danger that I think even as a parent, you... You know, when you, when you bring your kids and you're a part of a church, you're hoping that all the relationships from the adult to the young are saying things that are in accord with Scripture. One of the hardest things is if you're a part of a church, from adults to youth are saying something different to your own children. Y'all get what I'm saying? Like, that's the most hard part. That's, the, that's unequally yoked. That's the corruption from the inside. That's what they were dealing with. That's why... When a church has people who join a church, there should be some kind of doctrinal statement that they should agree to, right? There should be beliefs. There should be at least, there should be a a high standard of church membership because in church membership, you're saying to people, hey, I trust you. Hey, you believe this. Hey, I trust what you're going to teach my own family. There's not going to be any of this unequally yoked from the inside. So point number one is the scriptural principle. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And just a side note. He got that from Deuteronomy 22.10. So if someone tells you, well, the Old Testament's not relevant today, kick it out. It has nothing to do with this. He's using a principle from the Old Testament law, right? And saying, hey, this directly applies to this situation. Interesting. Now, not only that, 
here's the scriptural principle, but then look at point number two on your outline. Everybody okay? You still with me? You okay? All right. Can you say amen? All right. You still with me? Good. Boy, I miss us getting to eat together. Man, I really do. Um, I actually miss the fellowship part, not the food, because I'm so godly. I would not, you know, I, I miss the edifying is what I miss. I really miss it. Um, I really miss it. Um, we're going to actually try next week. We're going to start to try to incorporate at least some edify moments into our worship service until we get to have the meal again. We're going to try to incorporate that um, as soon as we can. We'll be back into the meal, but there's just, you know, obviously stuff going on. OK, now point number two on your outline is questions that support the scriptural principle. So it gives the principle. Right. Do not be unequally yoked. Then he asks questions to help Im- impact that principle. God asks questions all throughout the scriptures. When God asks questions, is he asking the question because he doesn't know the answer? No. God asks questions because he's trying to get you, an I, an opportunity to think and ponder that, that, that idea. God wants you to do that. But God also doesn't ask questions just to leave you alone and go, well, you'll just come up to the right answer on your own. No, you won't, right? But God does ask questions for a reason. But God always gives you the answers. What's interesting here is we now get five questions to support the principle. Five questions to support the principle. The first four questions, there's no answer given. It's You're just supposed to sit on this and, and think through the, the logic of it. Then the fifth question, he starts to give an answer. Once again, God's, God has answers. He give, he's given us his word, right? There's this thing that people think sometimes, and you see this in the counseling world, that... If you ever go to a counselor and ask the counselor this question, you can know if they're orthodox or not. You can say, is the right answer lying within me and I just need to talk enough for the right answer to come out? Or is the right answer in the word of God? If a counselor ever tells you the right answer is lying within you, that is not a good counselor, right? That is not someone who believes the sufficiency and authority of scripture. I only say that to you because the, the, most, the most vulnerable you'll ever be in life is when you're hurting And you're going to somebody saying, I'm going to put my life and my soul in your hands. And whatever direction you point me, that's what I'm going. That's a a tremendous weight of power. And my fear is I've seen so many people give that to people who don't believe that the scriptures have the final answer. Now notice some questions. Look in verse 14. Four questions. The first question he asks in verse 14 is, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Righteousness and lawlessness. So he's trying to get at this, this idea, this principle. He's questions that support this, this scriptural principle of do not be unequally yoked. He says, what partnership has righteousness with, un, with lawlessness? What he's basically telling him is, look at the life of these false teachers. They are living a lawless life. They are not living according to God's commands. Yes, commands is not a bad word. It's not a cuss word. That's really a good word. He says they're not, they're living lawless. They're not living righteous, which also presupposes this idea. If someone is in Christ and living a righteous life because they have the righteousness of Christ put on their account through the work of the cross, that means they'll live a law abiding life. That means they'll love God's commandments. That means they won't like to lie. That means they won't like to murder. They won't like to murder in the heart. They won't like to covet. They want to live. They want to they want to live practically what they already are positionally in Christ. So he says, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? So he's saying, 
this, there's an unequal yoking. You can't sit there and accept what these false teachers are saying. Look at their life. They're perverting you in front of your very eyes. You see this sometimes in the prosperity gospel movement where um, there'll be a pastor who in this prosperity gospel movement will be living in such a way that you look at it and it's complete lawlessness, but the people will say things like, well, he's a very talented speaker, so God can use him. Well, the question would be, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? So he says, don't you see the lawlessness? This doesn't work together. There's no partnership, true partnership. Look at the next question. What fellowship, that's the Greek word koinonia, that Christians have with each other, has light with darkness? Second question. Light and darkness don't actually go together. They don't mix. They're not a part of each other. Light would be describing someone who's in Christ. Darkness would be describing someone not in Christ. The question before, righteousness would be described someone who's in Christ, who has the righteousness of Christ on their account. Lawlessness would describe someone who's not in Christ, right? There's nothing in common here. You can't have fellowship with each other. Look in verse 15, third question. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial is a false god. And when you refer to Belial, you're really referring to Satan here. What harmony has Christ with Satan? There's no harmony between Christ and Satan. Christ, Satan has his agenda, which is not to glorify God, is to rebel against Christ and to get Christ's creation and his people to rebel. There is no harmony between these two things. That's why he says you can't be unequally yoked together because you can't have true partnership. You can't have true fellowship. You can't have true harmony. The pagan and the, the pagan and the person in Christ can't really mix that well. Now, you might be saying at this point, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nick, are you saying never be a friend with a pagan? Not saying that. I am saying there's no way to be a friend with a pagan the way God calls you to be a friend with God's people. Two different things, right? In the end, someone who's not in Christ, there's a limit to partnership and fellowship and harmony that can even happen. There's a limit. You can't have that. You've got to be careful with the influences in life that you have. Now, I'm not saying ignore your neighbor who's not in Christ. I would say see yourself as a gospel extension to bring the gospel, to go forth and bring the gospel to your, to your neighbor. Do that. But then know this. Unless that neighbor's in Christ, there is no harmony, partnership, unity. There's nothing in common if Christ isn't there. Now, specifically, remember the context is these false teachers that he was letting them know, these guys may say the name Jesus and say some great things. There is no partnership. There is no harmony. There's no fellowship that you can have. This is an unequal yoke position. Now, look at the fourth question in verse 15. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So he just says, you don't have anything in common when these unbelieving pagans who are allowed to teach and infiltrate the church and you've made a part of the church, there's nothing you have in common. By the way, let me lean in on something this is kind of a, a rabbit trail, not an elephant trail, a rabbit trail, right? What is an elephant trail? What Paul did from chapter 2, verse 13 to chapter 7, verse 4. I call that an elephant trail, right? I mean, man, several chapters to prove a different point to, uh, you know, to give support for his ministry ethics. But let me do a rabbit trail. Notice this idea. And what he says in verse 15, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. Common, common. Here's a rabbit trail. Just encouragement for us. You know, I hear in the church all the time this idea, and I hear it a lot, um, that here's what you got to do. 
Find people in the church that are your same age, with your same lifestyle, your same likings and preferences, and then you can have fellowship if everybody's just like you. Find the people who are just like you, then you can have fellowship. Has y'all ever heard that before? Anybody ever heard that idea? Right? You've got to find people who, who, you know, if you're single, they've got to be single. If you're engaged, you've got to be engaged. If you've been married 10 years, find people who've been married 10 years. If, you, if they have five kids, find people that have five kids, right? Or one kid, or, or they're, they've been married 20 years and they have no kids, right? You've got to find the people who are just like you, that you have something in common. Let me tell you that with that idea. Write that idea on a piece of paper, right? Then take that piece of paper and do what? Roll it up. And burn it. Throw it away. That's a terrible idea. Why? Because if you have Jesus, that's enough. If you have Jesus in common, that's enough. So you can be 60 and you can be 16. And sit at the same table. Fellowship with each other. Love each other. Because you have Christ in common. Now, pagans, you can't have anything in common with a pagan. But I'm just telling you. If you're warned that you have nothing in common with an unbeliever, that means... If someone's a believer and you're a believer, no matter if you have a different lifestyle setting or an age or a demographic, that means if you have Christ in common, that's enough. Now, I say that for this reason. You've got friends, there's people watching online, there's people visit churches, and here's how most people visit churches. They look to find out who is there that I have in common with in my demographic kind of life circle. And I would say, that's not how you look. Look for Christ, right? If you have Christ in common, man, that is enough. Now, he's answered these, these, he's given these four questions. Now he gives the fifth question. Look in verse 16, the fifth question. Or what agreement has the sanctuary of God with idols? Right? Here's the fifth question. What agreement has the sanctuary of God with idols? You can't share idols. If you remember, y'all remember the story where they took, where the Philistines took the ark and then put the ark in the pagan temple of Dagon, right? Anybody remember that? Does anybody remember what happened in that passage? What happened with that false god Dagon hanging out? Yeah, kicked him over. Then, you know, the next morning they look and he's like cut up and stuff. Because God doesn't share himself with false gods. God is terrible at sharing. He's jealous, right? He doesn't share his affections with idols and false gods. So he says, pulling on that principle in verse 16, he says, And what agreement has the sanctuary of God with idols? For we, now he gives the answer. So four questions, fifth questions, he now gives an answer to support his original premise, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He says, for we are the sanctuary of the living God. He says, God is living inside you. There's no longer a tabernacle. There's no longer a temple. There's no longer an ark of the covenant in the back of the holy of holies. You now have holy inside of you. When Jesus was on the cross, when he said, it is finished. Does anybody remember what happened to the veil that led into the Holy of Holies? It was ripped, right? Now Christ can be in you, right? Holy is in you. You are now the sanctuary of the living God. The sanctuary of the living God does not share space with idols, with lesser gods. So he says, this can't work out. This, these pagan unbelievers who are in your church, from the pulpit to the pew... That are info, you, this can't work out. There is corruption from the inside. Do not be unequally yoked. What agreement has the sanctuary of the living God with such paganism, with such idols? You are the sanctuary of the living God. So now he's given his answer. 
Now let's look at point number three. Answer to, answers to the scriptural principle. So he's, there's a principle in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked. He asks five questions, right? And now, on the fifth question, he starts to give answers. Now, this is point number three on your outline. Answers to the scriptural principle. He's given some answers that, that, that form out what we have to believe here. The first is, look at 3a, the covenant promise of God's presence. By the way, he's going back to Old Testament scripture. Just as a side note, the Old Testament is good scripture. It's scripture, right? Read the Old Testament, please. So he says in verse 16, this is really kind of 16b. First he says, Here's why you cannot, you can reject the idea of being unequally yoked with unbelievers. You can reject these false teachers. You can now, Corinthians, open your heart back to me. Here's, here's, the, here's the answers to this principle, the answer to these questions. Here's what, here's what you're going to do. Verse 16b, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If you're taking notes, this is a mosaic of 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 he's taking from Leviticus 26 verse 11. He's taken from Ezekiel 37 27. He's taken from Jeremiah 24 verse 7. He's taking multiple but this idea that in the Old Testament the covenant promise of God's presence always had this idea, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will dwell among you, right? That's what covenant means. To so be in covenant with God in the Old Testament, whatever covenant I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell among you. Even now, when you trust Christ as Savior, he will be your God. You will be his people. He will dwell among you and in you, right? So to support this idea, the answer is the covenant promises of God's presence. He's telling them, you can reject the idea that you can, you can be yoked up with unbelievers. and be, You can reject that idea because... I actually live in you. My presence is more precious. I am dwelling among you. How they are dwelling among you is not as important as how I'm dwelling among you. Reject this. God has promised his covenant presence to to be with you and walk with you. Here's what happens sometimes. Please, if you're online and you can hear this, please just... There are so many... I just got to walk because I, I need you to understand the pastoral heart on this. There are so many bad relationships that God's people are in that are outright corrupting and we know it. We know it. And the reason we won't give it up sometimes is because we're afraid of the loneliness. We're just simply afraid of the loneliness. Now, if you're married, I'm not, I'm not talking about like getting rid of your spouse because, you know, they act like fakers. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about there are friendships you maybe had from life, childhood, family members that, you, that are now, you are unequally yoked with them in such a way that there is corruption from the inside. I mean, you know it every Thanksgiving, right? Your, your family wonders like, man, you love Jesus, but you act like, you act like a pagan whenever, you know, where Thanksgiving comes. There is this... Fear of loneliness, of being by yourself. But look what he says in the text, quoting from the Old Testament, the promise that God had with his covenants. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell among you. As they leave Egypt, going to the promised land, God tells them this in Leviticus. 
at when they returning back from exile. God tells them this in his, for Ezekiel. Even in Hebrews 13, 5, the promise is, we are told, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you have the covenant promise of God's presence, right? So you can reject the idea of being yoked with unbelievers. Now, keep going, keep going. Verse 17. Now this is 3B. The covenant call of separation. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. He's quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 11. Uh, Israel was always called to come out from the pagans that were among them. Because, kind of like Solomon. Let's go back to Solomon now. You remember what Solomon did? He went and got women. Multiple women, wasn't supposed to do. Then got pagan women, weren't supposed to do. And in the end, it ended up corrupting his life and heart and the kingdom split. Why? God had called Israel to separate. God is calling us to separate. Does that mean you're not going to be a witness to your unbelieving co-worker? No. It does mean that there's nothing you share with that unbelieving co-worker that you'd be able to share the same thing with God's people, right? It does mean there's a difference. And it, it, it does mean that when it comes to even inside the body of Christ that, man, you better be very careful where you decide to park your, your, yourself for church membership and what, what pastors and what teachers and disciples and what books you're going to read and what things you're going to let influence you. Whatever you believe will determine your behavior. And, I'm, I'm just, and this is why he says, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. God has called Israel to separation for what was unholy. God calls God's people to separate from what is unholy. When we take communion here in a little bit, it's a reminder that we separate ourselves from sin unto Christ. Now, notice some things. Go back to his questions a while ago. Do you remember in the questions he said, for what partnership, what fellowship, what harmony, what common? Those are all words of fellowship. And he basically says, you can't do it with unyoked people. You can't do it. There's no fellowship, partnership. There's nothing in common. It it doesn't work. So the call to separate. Here's a question for us to ask. Is there any false teaching that we need to separate from in our church, in our own life, in our own belief system? Is there any false teaching? Is Is there any false philosophies that we're unwilling, that, are, that especially have destroyed us? Are there, what are the things that we need to come out from among? Are there false beliefs about the gospel that, that we have, that you may have, that have been a corruption to your life? The covenant call is to separate, still separate. Now look at 3C, 3C, verse 18. He says this, And, and I will welcome you, that's the end of verse 17, And I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, man. C on your outline, 3C, is the covenant draw of adoption. See, Solomon looked for comfort in women, and those women can never compare to God. We, these Corinthians, had sought for comfort with these false teachers. These false teachers could never compare to the comfort that only God could give. Sometimes we seek solace in pagan friends who are drawing us from Christ, but nothing can give us what Christ can give us. What can Christ give us? Look in verse 18. Adoption. He says, I will be, I will welcome you. Verse 18, I will be a father to you. You will be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. At age 16, on my tan couch, 
I, became, I was adopted into the family of God by the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Hey, I thought it was great. You heard my daughter Arabella last week in her baptism testimony tell you on a tan couch. We have tan couches, right? That she became a follower of Jesus, right? That's where she was adopted. She belongs to God. Why can we not be yoked with unbelievers? Because the call that God has drawn us, he's adopted us. We're part of his family. You know what's really hard? It's some of us here today have been cast off from our families because we decided not to be equally yoked, unequally yoked with their pagan philosophies. And it hurts. It hurts. But here's some encouragement, friend. God says, whatever you lost with your aunt and your uncle and your brother and your sister and your mom and your dad, I give you more and I'm better. I've adopted you. You're mine. That's an encouragement to not be with this whole idea of unequally yoked. Now look at chapter 7, verse 1. The last is the draw of holiness. The draw of holiness. He says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. Notice the two parts of man, the outward and the inward, right? The spirit and the flesh. The outward and the inward. What you believe on the inside will determine your behavior on the outside. What your heart believes, your hand will do to the outside. He says, look, as a result of what you have in Christ, I I, want to tell you, Corinthians, you can draw near to God in holiness. The corrupting influences on the inside, you can now cleanse yourself from these, from the inside leading to the outside, from from the spirit to the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What was stopping them? They feared man. They feared man so much that they kept walking in this unequal yokedness, especially within their church and their own leaders, right? But God says, I give you something more. Because of the work of the cross, you can draw near to me in holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Don't fear what you'll lose in your relationships. Fear me. I'll end with this. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Remember the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Man, I'm going to tell you something. If you ever wondered, what would it be like if I just gave full vent to all my pagan urges? Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon went far. He had the money to go far. He, got, he had more women and wealth and houses and gardens. He went further in horses and gold than anybody ever gone, right? And then he gets to the end of his life and he basically says, man, that's, that was dumb. Like that, that didn't do anything for me. In fact, at the very end, what does he say? The end of the matter and all that has been heard, what does he say? Fear God and what? Keep his commandments. Fear God. He says, in the end, I shouldn't have been so unequally yoked. I, un, I, I yoked myself up with these pagan women that influenced my heart. It destroyed the king, it's destroying the kingdom. In the end, I should have just feared God and kept his commandments. That's what I should have done. He ends this with this idea of perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Is that God's people are to have a growing fear of God so much that we don't fear man. These needed so much of a growth in the fear of the one true God. That they don't fear these false teachers. That they can reject this unequal yoking. That they can reject the false teaching that's telling them that you're not saved by the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus alone. These corrupting influences inside the church. All they need to now realize is they can perfect holiness in the fear of God 
Here's a question for us as we end out in this message. Do we fear God more than we fear man? Do we fear him? What a great opportunity to sing to the Lord and then to take the, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a fresh opportunity to remember the cross and to reassess a walk of holiness in our life. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing to the Lord. I'm going to pray. And then while we're singing, we're going to pass out the Lord's Supper. And I also want to pray for you if you're here and you're not in Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to him. So if you stand to your feet and would you pray with me? And maybe you're here and I came to Christ on a tan couch in my parents' living room. One of my daughters came, became a follower of Jesus on the tan couch in our living room. And maybe, yeah, woo-woo, that's right. Hey, maybe God wants you to become a Christian on blue chairs with a little bit of rust. Let's go to the Lord. Father, if there is somebody here, maybe they are that unbeliever that really none of us believers could yoke to. Wouldn't it be awesome right now if they could change that? If they could call out to you, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you show them their rebellion and sin and violation of the Lord's commandments puts them in a position of hell and judgment from the Lord. Would you show that to them? And then would you show them that you are the one who absorbed God's wrath in our place? You are the one that has satisfied the wrath that our sin deserves. By faith, they can trust in that alone. You resurrected. You've given us all the evidence we need to know that, you, that your sacrifice has been accepted. Would you bring them to you? I want to pray a prayer for you if that's you and maybe you haven't trusted Christ. Maybe he is speaking to you today on this. Here's what a prayer could look like. It's not the prayer itself that saves you. It's, it's do you mean what you're praying here? A prayer of faith can be something like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've broken your law and your commandments. I realize that now. I can't save myself. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I trust this. By faith, through grace, you died for my sins. Thank you for rescuing me from from the judgment that's coming on me. Thank you for giving your righteous life now on my life. Let me follow you, love you, obey you, make disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.